Hi, this is Lady C. Welcome to The Critical Thought. In the upcoming episode, we're going to be talking about Jehovah's Witnesses accepting blood transfusions secretly. Several weeks ago, we received an email from an anesthesiologist stating that there's an uptick in the number of Jehovah's Witnesses that are willing to take a blood transfusion in order to save their life as long as the Watchtower leadership or brothers in the congregation are unaware of their decision to do so. So in the upcoming episode, we're going to be talking about Jehovah's Witnesses accepting blood, and we also know of an individual that this was actually the case with their family. They had this decision to make about their unborn baby, whether or not they would accept a blood transfusion. So stay tuned as we get underway with the discussion. You're listening to The Critical Thought, where we challenge our listeners to use critical thinking when examining the teachings of Jehovah's Witnesses. I went into labor early. My water had broke at 20 weeks. And that is definitely not a time close at all that you should be delivering a baby. And so they took me from the hospital that I lived in in the small town to a nearby city that could handle just in case she was delivered um, as a preemie during that time. But instead, they were able to um, get me on bed rest. And then um, she came two weeks later. So it was close to 23 weeks and she weighed one pound, 14 ounces. And so that is a, a very scary thing, because when I was reading all these books and the, and the doctor telling me she's going to need blood because they're not producing their own blood at this time. And they also have to test the baby and they take a very, very small amount of blood, you know, because they do have to constantly check for infection and stuff. And so they were worried that that testing also would cause a problem with her blood loss because, again, she's not producing her own blood. And they were like, she may definitely need a transfusion or platelets to help her. So that was from the beginning before I even went into um, labor with her, that I knew that those could be, um, that could be the problem or what would happen after I gave birth to her so early. So let me ask you the question that many people often ask, especially people who are not familiar with Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, how does the elders even know that you are in the hospital? Um, well, my water broke early. And so, of course, not only do we inform family, but we also inform the elders, too. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. Every Jehovah's Witness basically is instructed when you go into the hospital, contact the elders. Mm -hmm. And the reason will be because of the concern with blood. Who got involved in your particular case? Was it just the local elders or did they have to bring in the hospital liaison committee? Um, for my case, they had to bring in the hospital liaison because they moved me to a different city um, where I live. They didn't have um, the tool, you know, to help me with um, her coming so early. So they moved me to um, a closer city where that's when the liaison, when I met a whole different group of elders I never met before in my life. So, yeah. Yeah. 
And so it's it's kind of ironic because you're now in a room with 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 a number of individuals you, you don't even know who they are. You know nothing yeah. about them. All you know is they're from the Kingdom Hall. And what often happens is in cases like this, the doctors and the clinicians they see the interaction between this group of men in business suits and this individual who's laying here uh, heavy sedated many times, um, sick, and literally don't know what to say. Now, did the elders or did the hospital, in your case, did the hospital liaison committee, did they speak directly with your doctor's staff? They tried to, but he would not acknowledge them. So it was very interesting. They kept looking at him talking. He would not look at them. He looked directly at me the whole time as if to say, I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to her. He would never give them eye contact. Um, when they would try to cut in and say something, he would roll his eyes, but he never acknowledged them. But yes, they did try to do most of the talking. And then he would just look at me like and repeat what he said. So, yeah. Yeah. Um Many, many doctors, when they see this interaction, uh, it, it just sends flags up. I mean, it, it just sends flags up that this is a person who's not talking. They're talking. And 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 and, and we, we've seen it before. A, a perfect example is sometimes when you might see a husband and wife is having a problem and you can see the wife talking or the husband talking. And, you know, that's not what they're saying. That's not what they're saying. And so generally, most people in general can pick up. We're in tune to when someone is actually speaking for themselves or speaking because of what or who is around them. And um, that is what makes this so interesting because people like yourself will be facing literally a life and death situation. Um, as, as, the, as the hospital liaison committee, when, they first, when you first met them, as you begin to see how they begin to operate, did you notice or see anything that, that made you concerned? Because remember, the whole of go at this point when they when they roll in, the whole objective is to make sure that you do not take any blood or give any blood to any of the children that may be born. Um, right. Was there at any point where you was like, I, I just don't know? So as the hospital liaison committee was dealing with the doctors, I had not given birth to her yet. So these were things that could have happened, but weren't happening now. So I looked at it as if they were talking about situations, this could, this could be the worst case situation, but I didn't know because at the time nothing had happened. And so it was like, okay, well, that may not happen is how I felt like, okay, everything that they're preparing for, please don't let that be the worst case scenario. Yeah. And so I think that's why the doctor kept cutting in and looking at me like, they don't know what they're talking about. And I think that's the scary part too, is that we just trust and think that they have all this knowledge, but they really don't know what they're talking about. And I think that is the scary part about all of it that I didn't realize until after the situation happened. The elders were trying to tell him like, well, you can do this and you can give the baby that instead, or you can, you know, maybe give more vitamins. And they were offering all these suggestions and it's stuff that, yes, you can look up the things that they were saying. I could, I could Google that, but 
that is still not going to save her life in this situation. Say she was born maybe weeks later, you know what I'm saying? Maybe she came at 32 weeks. Maybe, maybe that'd be okay. But her situation, absolutely not. The stuff they were suggested, suggesting, excuse me, was not going to save her life. And the wow. doctor knew that. So yeah, yeah. And that's when um, he realized he wasn't getting anywhere because he's just like, they're talking for her, they're talking for her. So I never forget, it was the next day and um, it was three o'clock in the morning, about three, 3.30 in the morning. And I was up, he came in the room by himself, no nurses, no nothing. And he looked straight at me and he said, what do you want? And I like, I looked at him and I said, I want her to live. And he said, okay. And I feel like he knew exactly what I was saying without me saying it, you know, without me saying like, yes, give her bleed. But he just looked at me and I think like he knew I cannot get to this woman. I cannot get to this mother without meeting her, you know, reaching her at a time where all these people aren't around her, talking for her, telling her what to do. And I knew I had saw her, you know, I, I saw her that night after they rushed her down and had her in tubes. And I saw how hard she was fighting. Like I saw her chest, I saw her feet were moving. And I thought to myself, I'm like, she's fighting to live. Like, why would I, why would I not help her? You know, why would I not let them help her? And so by him doing that, and I just, to this day, I'm so grateful because I mean, for him to be like, let me figure out another way to do this. You know, let me, let me reach her at a time where I could get her by herself and just ask her, what do you want? Yes, absolutely. I wanted her to live. And if that required her getting platelets or whatever the case may be, so be it is how I felt in that moment. Yeah. How many members of the hospital liaison committee uh, were able to actually um, be on site with you? So it was, we were dealing with three, but it was two that were there. Yeah. yeah. And and even um, the thing that I also need to make clear is that before he spoke to me, I think he was in a dire need. Like he was just like, I'm saving this baby's life because no, you know, I, I can't get through. I think I can't get through to her. And so he did um, file a paper with the court in order to make sure that we, he could give the blood to the baby without it being in illegal situations. He was trying in every way to make sure that he could save her. And that's one thing like I want to stress is that the doctors like they 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 know what we need and they want that's their job is to save our lives, you know. And so he just wanted to do his job that he knew he could do. This was a case where he knew what my daughter needed to make her live. You know what I'm saying? So he knew what was required. And I just feel like the elders don't. They don't know. Yeah. They're following these rules and saying these things that they read or articles or whatever, but they don't know. These doctors do. Yeah. Um, th that is one of the challenges that medical professionals have when they deal with the typical liaison committee, because um, most of the individuals who make up these liaison committees, they have absolutely no medical background in terms of experience. They are not from the medical field.
So you have a man who drives the bus for the city. You have another man. He has a little cleaning business. And you got another guy. He works nights, you know, you know, doing carpet. And now they're standing in this environment of medicine where sales and DNA and all this kind of stuff. And they're repeating to these doctors stuff that the doctors know. They just read the script. They have they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. And I had the opportunity to talk to someone who had served on the hospital liaison committee. And that was the point that he had made that uh, he, and that was kind of when his awakening uh, happened as well. Uh, he was sitting there in this conference room with anesthesiologists. He was the people who were the head of the, you know, the, 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 the professional staff, the, the executive staff, and they was him and two other uh, witnesses. And they was trying to explain to these doctors this and that. And he said, you could just look around the table and just see, they were like, clown, what are you doing? <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> you have, and so, and so they were just going through all the little stuff. Like you said, they was, they was making recommendations where you can give them this and you can give them that. And those doctors were like, man, I got 23 years of experience. I mean, I did my residency down and down and, you know, worst, worst place in the world to learn how to be a medicine doctor. And yet, and here I am now. And so this is what happened. And this is the part that witnesses don't understand is that you have somebody who's representing you who don't know nothing. I mean, it's yeah. wonderful somebody's represent, but if they don't know anything, it's sad. And so the doctors, because of the legal issues, they often will simply back up, not because of medical reasons, but because of legal issues. And you made an interesting point. You said that the hospital filed papers to if they needed to move forward. Let me ask you a question. Uh, because we've interviewed and we've talked to people over the years since we've left uh, who found themselves in a situation very similar to yours. And what they told us was kind of interesting. And that is they were relieved. I thought it was so interesting. They said they were actually relieved. And these were people who at the time were diehard Jehovah's Witnesses, a Jehovah God and would stick to what the slaves said, all this kind of stuff. And when the hospital took over and got the legal paperwork and everything says we're going to force blood, they were relieved because they did not have to make the decision. Yes. They was yeah. like, thank you, Jehovah. At least somebody <laughs> helped out. You know? And so that is that is such an ironic thought. But that is what. And so that is really the, the problem. And so this particular program uh, and the reason we wanted to get you on because we wanted you to share what your personal experience was because we had been contacted, as Lady C had mentioned uh, before, uh, by an actual anesthesiologist who this, this is something that they're seeing. They're actually seeing Jehovah's Witnesses, and they're seeing them at greater and greater numbers where people come in. They have the hospital liaison committee there. They may have their local elders there. But when those guys leave the room, it's a different story. And this is very serious because there's a growing number of PIMOs. And so these are individuals who, because of the circumstances that they find themselves under right now, they may have to do certain things, as they say, go along to get along. But when it comes down to this life and death type situation, you will have a PIMO who is laying here and think the blood stuff is absolutely crazy. And um, and once this, these individuals leave, they will find themselves oftentimes given a different story. And this is what makes this organization so dangerous. Uh, the Watchtower has literally made a decision to get into the medical care of its members, 
to yeah. issue medical directives as to what type of medicine you can take and you can't take. And the problem, of course, as we know, is is subject to change next week. And so what can and, and this is one of the things that frustrate the doctors because they'll sit there and listen to. And, and there are many doctors who've been around long enough to know how Jehovah's Witnesses have revised their teachings. They read the medical because these guys have to read medical journals and stuff. And they read the articles about, yeah, you know, eight, nine, 12, 15 years ago, y'all said you couldn't do this. And all of a sudden God changed his mind. And I lost three patients because y'all foolish teaching laying on the table because trying to follow what y'all guys said. Now y'all say it's okay. There are doctors who have sat in hospital rooms and operating rooms and dealt with Jehovah's Witnesses under those types of circumstances. They realize that the law lets certain things go by, but they know how the foolishness coming down from the upper levels of this religion actually can be at times. And so now let me ask you, as you, as you look back now, you know, as you look back now, what goes through your mind as you look at how close you came to literally allowing a bunch of individuals who don't know nothing about medicine, make a decision that could impact your child's life and your life as well. What runs through your mind? You know, um, Kizai just celebrated her birthday last month. She's 10 now. And every time her birthday comes around, I just think like she's here. She is here. And she could possibly have not been, you know, all by listening to some men who know nothing. They distorted the scriptures. They did, they absolutely know nothing that, just to think that I wouldn't have her here. And it, and it also makes me think of a couple of friends whose parents didn't do it or mothers didn't do it and they don't have their moms here or they don't have their uncles here. And, and it hits me. It's like, this is serious. This is taking away someone that you love. And so I am grateful to that doctor still today. Sometimes I send an email to him <laughs> or a picture update of her, you know, through the years be like, thank you. Thank you. Because I was not thinking. So I'm so thankful that someone else could take over, you know, and, and the same thing for my husband, the same way he feels. He's like, just think if we just went along with these men where we wouldn't even have her and you've met her, you've seen her like, like <laughs> she would not, Yeah. she would not be here. So I just, Yes, I do. I think about that and I'm so thankful. And it also hurts me, too, because I think of my other friends that didn't, you know, have the opportunity or didn't know or wasn't able to get a chance maybe to say, yes, save them. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because I think it's very important. Uh, you know, there may be Jehovah's Witnesses who are watching and they'll and they'll say, well, you know, they, they were just spiritually weak. You know, you know, Want to tell the meetings and that kind of silly stuff. Could you share with us what your status was in the congregation when you found yourself in this situation? Yes. So first of all, I'm a third generation. So um, it's, you know, everyone in my family, my grandparents. And so um, also, too, I was a regular pioneer at the time and um, very, very much in it. And to the point where I had Bible studies and actually had a Bible study that was attending who did end up visiting me in the hospital too when I was there. So I was 
extremely active. I probably would have judged someone. I'm pretty sure I was judging folks. <laughs> so we all did. We all did. <laughs> as to if they had taken it, I would have judged them definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's so important. Um, the Bible speaks about you know Paul in his letter. He talked about people should have the ability to use their conscience. And this is one of the most fascinating things about this religion. This religion will tell you what is and is not a conscious matter. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely an oxymoron. How do you get to tell me what a conscious matter is? That, that's the, that is the whole essence of a conscious matter. Mm -hmm. You're doing something that is a conscious matter. And so it's so amazing how in this religion on Monday, you're instructed that action A is not a conscious matter. It is not something that you have the capacity to decide on. Us guys up here in New York, we decided for you. And then on Friday, they inform you, <laughs> you know, uh, it's really a conscious matter. You, you can decide what you want to do. And we was just joking on Monday. That's what this organization does to people. Now, here's the kicker. And this is why we call our channel what we call it, Critical Thinkers. As one of Jehovah's Witnesses, including myself, we would see this scenario play out all the time, over and over and over and over. And yet very, very few of us ever stop to ask the critical thinking question. Simple questions. How is that possible? How is it possible on Monday I could not make this decision? I did not have the capacity to make this decision, and by Friday I can. And so this is what makes high control groups work. They impact its members to the point where you cannot think for yourself. Let me give you an example. The hospital liaison committee will come into the hospital. And so you have a Jehovah's Witness. And, and, and I want it's, it's ver see, it's very important to understand that many times when we shoot these videos, and perhaps the vast majority of our audience, uh, they may live in what is known as a Western country. But there are Jehovah's Witnesses all around the world, boots on the ground over 200 countries. And unfortunately, unfortunately, many of these individuals may not be very highly educated. Many of them may be struggling financially. And we know we live in a world today where position often involves how you will be treated. Mm -hmm. So you'll have people in these countries where they will go into a hospital for doctor. And here they are, maybe not even finished school. And they're going to explain to a doctor the various fractions and all this kind of stuff. It reminds you of what happens to Jehovah's Witness kids. They are being taught a doctrine they can't even explain. Yeah. Think about how many children in school. And I remember this myself. You know, you th first, second, third, fourth grade, maybe. And the teacher, why, why can't you eat the chocolate cake? Why can't you eat the cupcake? And the little Jehovah's Witness child cannot explain it. So the only thing he can remember is John the Baptist got his head cut off. Okay. That's, that's what yeah. we would say. Yeah. That's the same thing that happens when these adults find themselves surrounded by all of these people in this profession. Yes. They look to the hospital liaison committee and they say, well, you, you explain it to them. You know, you, 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 you explain it to them. I, I don't know the word. You, you. And so here you have somebody going to explain something about your life that you don't know. Um, as a former elder, what bothered me uh, 
when I was an elder, and, I, and, and I, it, it, it really kind of it's funny you see stuff, but you don't see it. I was the secretary in the congregation, so I had to give each year the blood directive talk. Friends, we renew your cars and here and we, we do all your paperwork and everything. And I remember when we would get the letter from the society, we'd be back in the elders' meetings, and, and the, at the time I was a presiding overseer. Uh, he was saying, hi, JT, <laughs> you got that, uh, you got that covered the secretary. And, uh, and the, and the other elders be like, yeah, if anybody got any questions, I'm going to send them to you, JT. <laughs> and so I would give this talk about the blood directives and everything. And if you've ever looked at the form, the big form where you were putting in your, you know, your directives on your, you know, and everything, your power train, all that kind of stuff, um, medical directive. And so what happens is you will notice words that you don't even know what they are. And I remember a lot of little old sisters would come up to me and say, Brother JT, which one of these can I check? Which, which yes. one do I need to check? I, yes. I don't know which one to check. Now, one of the things we, we would tell people, you know, be sure to consult with your doctor on this. How many Jehovah's Witnesses do you actually think all around the world where these papers were being filled out, went to their doctor and sat down on their next visit, a doctor, uh, which one of these you think? What, what is this? What is what is this word? What, what, what is very, very few. Very, very few. In fact, what I used to be told so many times by the friends, well, brother JT, I ain't messing with none of it. I'm I ain't, I'm not signing nothing. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna check no for everything. Yeah. yeah. Even when the watchtower says, okay, then you can use this one if you want to, and you can use that one if you want to, the friends are so confused, they're so uninformed, they're so uneducated on the subject, on the subject. They don't even know what to do. So once again, we end up sacrificing our families, our children, even our own lives on the altar of a group of men who literally have no background in this field. That's the, I mean, it, it, it's, it's just, oh my goodness. I mean, it, it's, as, as I look back now, it was like, it was, it was the craziest thing in the world. I mean, the craziest thing in the world. It really was. It really you was. know, what's interesting what you said too, is they won't even back up what they teach. So even when we went to court and we were going to explain to them about the resurrection hope and about, you know, the things that they teach us, they stopped us. They were like, no, 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 no. Don't say that. Do not <laughs> say that. that. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I never forgot that even though I didn't wake up at that time, it always stuck with me. I'm like, why wouldn't we tell them what, what you tell us? Like, that's the reason why we do it. That's why and we're doing what I, we're doing. Yes. And I remember one of the brothers saying they wouldn't understand it. It would sound crazy to them. And that has always. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You, 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 it, is it not? Lady, lady, see, we've had this conversation so many things. She, she often talk about how she would go to the door and she would like, I'm not going to even say this to the person. They're going to think me crazy saying it. And, and that is so true. The, the, at, at, on some level, we realized just how asinine some of the stuff that we were saying really was. We, we, we realized it, but we just went on. Yeah. I mean, we often realize this sounds crazy, but we went on. And that, and as I tell people, these are the earmarks of what it means to be a part of a high control group. Even when your mind is able to rationalize, this makes no sense. We still continue. And that is why the, the governing body has told Jehovah's Witnesses, even if we tell you something absolutely crazy, you just do it anyway. And you can rest assured, the vast majority of witnesses, unfortunately, they will do whatever they are told, even if it means putting their life 
on the line for these guys. Is, is there anything else you would like to share in regards to what your experience involving blood in your child has been for you? Yes. I mean, sometimes we don't get to go back and think uh, certain people for the things that they've done, but we had the opportunity to go and visit the doctor who uh, delivered her and went through the whole process with us and saved her life, basically. And um, we got to bring her up when she was five and we took pictures. We took pictures with all the nurses and staff. And what was so funny is he said he never forgot us because he said, I've never been to court, first of all. For <laughs> but he said that he was always worried about how we felt. And I just just started crying. And I was like, no, no, like this is one thing that you could check off your list. You never have to worry how we feel. We are so thankful for what you did. We are so thankful that we are holding her right now and that you can see her. So no, we knew that you wanted her to live and you did the best you could. There is, we don't hold anything against you. And I think that was just like a relief for him, you know, and a, a relief for us. And just, it, it was a moment we won't forget. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And we're glad that we were able to get your experience on what it's like to find oneself right in a situation like that and how you have to, at the end of the day, make a decision for yourself. Now, what's so important to understand about this entire scenario with the hospital liaison committee and Jehovah's Witnesses who are uh, find themselves in this position is how the Watchtower has literally changed how it deals with people who take blood. Because of what has been happening over the last few years, it became necessary for the Watchtower literally to change its entire judicial process. See, for many, many years, any Jehovah's Witness who took blood could be brought up to a judicial committee and this fellowship. The Watchtower got so much heat from people who had family who weren't Jehovah's Witnesses. They would see their mother or their father or whatever being pressured to say they did not want to take blood. And so they start suing people. They start suing the society. And so now the watchtower has shifted that you will not be this fellowship. And when, in fact, they'll tell, they'll often tell people in court, yeah, we won't take any judicial action against the person who takes blood. And that is true because they're not going to take any action as in a judicial case for disfellowshipping. Instead, a person is now disassociated. And we did a video, and we're going to put a link in here that you can get to about the difference between disfellowshipping and disassociating, how it benefits the Watchtower legally. And that is why today a person will not be disfellowshipped for taking blood. They will be classified as disassociated. And it's all because of the legal blowback that this organization got by people simply making their own decisions. All right, we want to thank you so much for being in our audience. This has been Lady C, and we look forward to seeing you in future episodes. This program was sponsored by Critical Thinkers.